I would like to direct your attention to Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. And I'll be reading verses 1 through 6. Ephesians chapter 4. This is the word of our God. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we rejoice that you have given us your word. Father, you have given these principles of your word to guide us in our lives and in bringing glory and honor to you and to Jesus, your son. Father, as we go through these verses, as we look into your word again, please teach us by your Holy Spirit. Lord, write these truths upon our hearts. Cause us to obey them, to live them out in our lives. Lord, that you may be glorified in the world and that your people may shine before the world and cause others to glory in you. Father, we pray for your your blessing and your assistance now. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. As we've gone through these verses in Ephesians 4 over the past few months, we've been considering the question, what is the unity of the Spirit? When Paul uses this phrase, what does he have in mind? He is exhorting us as Christians to walk worthy of our vocation, our calling. And a significant aspect of that worthy walk is to preserve the unity of the Spirit, We have seen that this consists of three things. First of all, the Holy Spirit gives his people the same mind. The Spirit gives God's people the same mind. And because we have the same mind, we all serve the same master. And because we are serving the same master, we therefore have the same mission. This is the unity of the Spirit. And these are three crucial elements to understanding this unity. Where any one of them is missing, unity will be unattainable. We could put it another way. We all must have the same doctrine of Scripture. We have to agree on what the Bible is, its authority, its sufficiency in our lives. And we must have the same doctrine of God so that we all believe in the same God and we all worship the same God. We understand the same things about him and his character and his attributes. And we must have 
the same gospel, that we all understand what God has done to save sinners and what sinners are responsible to do in response to the work of God in Jesus Christ. We need to have these things in common because this is the unity that the Spirit creates within the church. Now, the next question that we need to consider is, how do we preserve the unity of the Spirit? We must begin, first of all, by understanding that our task is to preserve, not create, unity in the Spirit. When we talked about the ecumenical movement several months ago, we noted that the ecumenical movement is a group of people who have come together with all of their differences and their disagreements about the Bible and God and the mission of God and even the gospel. And they are trying to find a way to create unity among themselves, despite all of their differences. Now, they are not really unified, but they want some visual, external, superficial unity. And they even think that this is a a divine mandate, that God wants them to do this. This misunderstanding comes from Jesus' prayer, a misunderstanding of Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17. And if you would, let's look at John 17 for a moment. John chapter 17. We've considered this text before in this study. And in John chapter 17 and verse 11, the Lord says, And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to thee, Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. And then Jesus goes on in verse 20 and prays this, Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And people take these verses and they say, see, it's Jesus' desire. He wants all God's people, all of God's children to come together and put aside all their doctrinal differences and all these different things that divide them. The problem with that is it misunderstands what the Lord is doing in John chapter 17. Christ is not teaching the disciples in this passage, not directly. He's not even talking to the disciples in this passage. He's speaking to God the Father. Jesus is praying. He is not saying to the disciples, either the original 11 who heard this or us today as we read the prayer of our Lord recorded here. He did not say, I want you all to come together in my name. And you are responsible to do this, to create some kind of unity among yourselves in the church. Not at all. The Lord Jesus is asking God the Father to make his disciples unified in him and in his name. This is not a command to us. This is a prayer request to God the Father. That means that the one Jesus expected to do this was not the church, 
but God. Christ expected it would be God that would create this unity in the church. And the question must be asked, did the Father answer the Son's prayer? And if the answer to this question is yes, then it is not a command for us to create unity. This is a statement of what God the Father has done in response to the Son's request as he went to the cross. If you say, no, God didn't answer this prayer, then do you think we are going to create unity if not even Jesus could pray and have unity in the church? That's a losing battle. If God didn't hear his one and only son, he is certainly not going to hear us who are only heard by God because we are in him. The prayer is answered by God the Father. The Father did create this unity in the church, and it is not a human work. It's not a human accomplishment. It's the work of the Spirit of God. And Paul spells this out in 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 13. In 1 Corinthians 12, 13, Paul says, For by one Spirit we are all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one spirit. You say, well, how does the Father answer the prayer of the Son? He does it through the work of the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit takes all of us as believers, the moment we come to faith in Christ, and he immerses us into the body of Christ. We are baptized into the body of Christ, placed into the people of God. And the unity exists from the moment of conversion because we are made a member of the one body of Christ, the church. And so there is no need for Christians to to run around and, and try to figure out how to create this unity in the church as if we are not already united in Christ. That is the work of the Spirit of God. And it is the answer to the prayer of the Son of God recorded in John 17. And that's why in Ephesians 4.3, Paul does not say endeavoring or being diligent to create the unity of the Spirit. No, he says endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The word translated to keep in Ephesians 4 here is also understood to mean guard or protect. That verse we just read in John chapter 17 and 17.11, Jesus said in that verse, Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me. And the word keep there in John 17 is the same word that Paul uses in Ephesians 4.3. Guard them in your name. Protect them in your name. Preserve them in your name. The name of the Lord is a strong tower, Proverbs 18.10 tells us. It's a fortress of protection. It preserves us when the evil one comes to attack us and to destroy us. And so what Paul is saying here is that we need to keep 
or preserve the unity of the Spirit. We need to protect the unity of the Spirit. We need to be those sentinels, those guards who are on lookout for Satan as he comes in and tries to destroy the unity of the church. And we must be that guard that is watching for all of those satanic attacks. Now, it is vital that we understand how all of this works. The Spirit puts us in the body of Christ. Satan comes along and tries to destroy that, and we must guard against that. We are not creating something. We are preserving something. We are keeping something that God has made. The question then is how? How do we keep this? How do we preserve it? We all know that there are many things that threaten the unity of the church. Factions form. Feelings get hurt. People get upset. Decisions are made that people don't agree with. All kinds of issues arise in the church. And they fracture. They splinter off into groups. So how do we keep this unity? Paul gives us two things in verse 3 to help us preserve the unity of the Spirit. First, we keep the unity of the Spirit by doing so with a Christ-centered focus. Paul says in verse 3, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He is explaining how this is to be done or with what this is to be done. In the bond of peace, with the bond of peace, The word bond was used of something that held two or more separate things together. In Colossians 2.19, for example, Paul says that the human body is knit together. It is bounded together so that it doesn't fall apart. Just like your body stays together because of joints and ligaments so that when you walk around, your arms and legs aren't falling off. So the body of Christ is bound together in a way that All the parts stay in a unified whole. And what is that bond? Paul says in Ephesians 4.3, it is peace. Or the bond of peace. Peace with God and peace with one another. The church should be a place that is marked by peace. Because the fruit of the Spirit is peace. And God gave us this peace to help overcome differences and difficulties and things that enter into the church and seek to divide and destroy it. This peace is Christocentric. It is Christ-centered, Christ-focused. Why do I say that? Well, you have to remember that when Paul talks about peace in verse 3, there are three chapters of information that lead up to that. In this letter, he has already defined peace for us. Look back at chapter 2 in Ephesians. Chapter 2. Let's look at verses 14 and 15. Ephesians 2, 14 and 15. For he, that is Christ, is our peace, who hath made both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, 
so making peace. Our peace is not just something that we possess. Our peace is a person. Jesus himself is our peace. He is the one that takes the Jews and the Gentiles, two groups that hated each other, and he makes these two groups into one new man, establishing peace between them, and their hostilities cease. And they cease because they are one new creation in Christ. And he, through the blood of his cross, is the bond that binds them together. When Paul then says that Christ is our peace, he is saying that it is Christ who enables us to be unified. And we find ourselves unified in Christ because all of us are new in him and part of one new body. When we come to Ephesians 4, 3, then when it says the bond of peace, we must recognize that what he is talking about is the same thing he was describing back in chapter 2. The bond of peace, who is Christ? Christ is the bond of peace. And if we want to keep the unity of the Spirit, we must stay focused on what unites us. And what is that? It is Christ. Christ is the bond that holds the church together. And disunity is what happens when we lose our Christ-centered focus and we become enamored and focused on something else. There's a vivid illustration in the New Testament of this in the letter of 1 Corinthians. If you would, turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and look at verse 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10. Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. He is beseeching or exhorting this church that was struggling with unity. And he says, you must be united. You must preserve unity. You must get rid of the divisions that you've created. These artificial things that are dividing you. God has joined you together, but you are creating all of these divisions. And you must dispense with all of that. And what were the divisions? Verse 11. For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. You are fighting. You are arguing with each other. You are quarreling. And this, this was not a doctrinal dispute. This wasn't some issue of central significance to biblical theology. They were fighting and squabbling like two siblings who were stuck in an intense sibling rivalry, just fighting with each other, almost looking for reasons to be divided. And then in verse 12, we see the nature of the contention. Now this I say that every one of you saith, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. They were identifying themselves with their spiritual leaders as a way of showing off their Christian credentials. You have one group over here saying, 
Well, God saved me while I was listening to the Apostle Paul. And, well, I was saved listening to the Apostle Peter and another group. Well, I was saved listening to Apollos preach. And you had a fourth group that said, I was saved just by reading the Bible. I just read the red letters in the Gospels. And I didn't even need an apostle. That's how spiritual I am. And this was all this game of who was more spiritual based on who had been discipled by whom and who was following whom. This was not like today when somebody says, I am a Calvinist or I'm an Arminian. Those are actually labels that mean something. And there is a doctrinal difference between them. Peter and Paul and the Lord Jesus and Apollos, they all had the same doctrine. They agreed on doctrine. These were not labels that differentiated systems of theology. These were labels that were used to put one person above another and needlessly divide the church. They were dividing up to feel superior to others. It would be like if you went to a pastor's conference and you you walked by a table and one pastor says, well, I went to RTS and I studied studied under R.C. Sproul, one of the premier Reformed theologians in the church in the last hundred years. And another pastor says, well, I went to Southern Seminary and I studied under Tom Nettles, one of the greatest minds in church history. And yet another says, well, I went to Master's Seminary and learned how to preach from John MacArthur. Do any of these accomplishments that impress so many mean anything in comparison to Christ? May it never be. What matters is Christ. Christ is the point. Christ is who holds the church together. Verse 13, Paul says, Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were ye baptized in the name of Paul? Is Christ divided among his servants? Does Christ take sides? No. Was your favorite Christian teacher crucified for you? Were you baptized into their name? No. They are meaningless. They are servants. And no more. The only one who matters is Christ. He was crucified for us. And we were baptized in His name. And He has not been divided into factions. The Corinthians had lost a Christ-centered focus. And they became consumed with men. They became consumed with the flesh with rank and status and all of these things that the world uses to divide itself up into these various categories and identity groups and all of these different factions. And Paul says, that is of the flesh. When you do that, he will rhetorically ask them later in chapter 3, are ye not carnal and walk as men? In other words, Are you not fleshly? And are you not walking like mere men? That is what the world does. 
That is not the way we learned in Christ. That is not how He is. And we need to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, the peace of Christ. Not divide Him. Not divide over who is more spiritual or who has better credentials. Or who listened to whom preach, who got trained where, or who discipled whom. None of those things matter. The only person who matters in the church is ultimately Jesus Christ. And the minute you get caught up in chasing something in the church other than Christ, you will not be able to preserve the unity of the church. So we must keep our focus in the church on Christ. Now, second, if we want to keep the unity of the Spirit, we must do so with a diligent heart. A diligent heart. Paul says this in Ephesians 4, verse 3, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The word translated endeavoring means being diligent. Another way you could say it is making every effort. It is not enough merely to guard it. It is not enough merely to protect it. We must preserve it, he says, and diligently. In the original language, this word spudazo, it looks very similar to an English word we have, speed. And in some context, it means just that. Go fast, hurry up, make haste. But it also means to do something eagerly. Do something with all of your might. Be especially careful about performing this task the right way. Be diligent. We see this word, for example, in 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15. Second Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15, the Word of God says, Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. The word translated study in this verse is the same word translated endeavoring in Ephesians 4.3. And it means be diligent. Be diligent to show or present yourself approved to God, Paul says to Timothy. Look, you are going to give an account to God someday for the way that you've handled the Scriptures. So you better work hard. You better be diligent. You better be conscientious of your duty of opening the Word of God and explaining what it means to people. You'll be held accountable for what you say. So be diligent so that you're not ashamed on that day. You better know what you're talking about. And the only way to do that is to work hard, to be diligent, to make every effort. This is addressed to the whole church in the letter to the Hebrews in chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 11. In Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 11, the writer says, Let us labor... Again, that's the same word that's being used. Let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. 
labor or be diligent, the writer to the Hebrews says, to enter salvation. Make sure you are really saved. Do not be like Israel of old who did not enter into that rest because they did not pursue it by faith. And they were not diligent to focus on this. Give your priority to your salvation. We see this again in 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 10. The apostle writes, Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your call and election sure. For if ye do these things, you shall ne- ye shall never fall. Be diligent to make sure that God has called you. Make every effort to know that you are saved. Look, there is nothing more important in your life than whether you are saved or still under God's judgment. You better be certain you know what is going to happen when you die. Don't get to the end of your life and think, you know, I sure hope I'm going to make it. Be diligent. Work hard, the Scripture says. Give all of your attention to this one thing. Make sure you are saved. Now, it doesn't say work hard to be saved. That's impossible. But be diligent and make every effort to know that you are saved, that you have been elected and called by God. And what is the promise? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved in thy house. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. If you are not repenting and believing the gospel, then you cannot make your calling and election sure. Be diligent. Be eager, therefore, to know that you are repenting of your sin and believing the gospel of Jesus Christ. These are the kinds of things that this word is applied to in the New Testament. Opening the word of God and proclaiming it to God's people and making sure that you are saved. It's the same word that Paul uses when he writes, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit. Just as you want to make sure that you are really saved, you better work hard and be diligent to give priority to the unity of the church. It needs to be at the top of your list. We must be diligent. We must work hard and make every effort to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the church. We must pursue that unity with all of our might. And it's hard to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Sometimes it's easy, you know, with the right people at the right time in the right circumstances. There are times when things in the church are easy, But it is not always like that. In fact, that is not usually the norm. Usually there is some conflict. There is somebody that has a problem with somebody. And usually that's happening in multiple directions. We must try to preserve the unity of the spirit. When these difficulties arise in the church, it's really quite tragic that most people put almost no effort into keeping the unity of the spirit. Typically, they just leave. This is contrary to the worthy walk that Paul talks about in Ephesians 4. If you want to walk worthy, verse 1, 
You have to be endeavoring. Verse 3, you must be diligent to keep the unity of the Spirit. You must work hard to preserve this unity. This must be a priority for you and for me. And we've seen that this is a difficult thing to maintain in this fallen world. That is why he says endeavoring or being diligent. Because to be diligent, as one writer put it, means you work hard at something that is hard. You don't have to be diligent about things that are easy. Nobody is diligent about eating their ice cream. You don't need to be diligent about that. It's easy. You must be diligent or make every effort to do things that are hard. And this is what Paul is saying. Work hard at something that is hard, which is preserving the unity of the Spirit because we have adversaries. Now, there are times when it is necessary to separate. There are doctrinal issues, as we've discussed. There can be issues where you have disqualified or unqualified leaders. And believers should never sit in a church where they are under leadership that do not meet biblical qualifications. That's an easy answer to whether I should leave a church. If the leadership is not qualified, yes, you should leave. Otherwise, you'll become like your teachers. Don't be under people who are ungodly. Sometimes people move, they change jobs, they have new opportunities to use their gifts. There are reasons why you might leave a church. If you leave a church the right way, you still have unity. Even if you're not in the same building every week. And there are times when sin crops up and creates disunity or different perspectives on things like We see with Paul and Barnabas in the scripture. But the interesting thing about Paul and Barnabas and Mark is that even though they went their separate ways and their unity was fractured, they worked hard over the years to restore it. And they did restore it. They were not content to say, well, we just didn't get along. I guess that's life. No, they worked to the point where Paul and Mark became co-workers again. And that takes effort. It takes humility. That takes love to overcome the kind of division that occurred between Paul and Barnabas. That takes diligence. You might say, well, yeah, Paul split from somebody. He's an apostle. He did, but he was diligent to restore that relationship, wasn't he? Now, because this is difficult... How do we exercise diligence in preserving unity? The message to us is not just give it your best effort, now get out there and do it. Scripture gives us practical steps as to how we can be diligent in preserving the unity of the Spirit. In the time we have remaining, let's look at four things that we can do to seek to be endeavoring to be diligent to keep the unity of the Spirit. First, we need to pray for discernment. We need to pray for discernment, especially today when discernment is an extremely short supply, even among many Christian leaders. And the kind of discernment 
I'm referring to is the kind that Paul mentions in Philippians 1, verses 9 and 10, where Paul is praying and he says, And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that ye may approve things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. Here Paul is praying for a church that struggled a great deal with unity. And he is praying that their love for God and for one another would grow and abound more and more. But he doesn't just want them to have warm feelings for each other. He wants their love to grow in real knowledge and in all judgment, which in this context means discernment. He wants it to be accompanied by doctrinal clarity and fidelity and discernment. What does he want them to know? Well, he tells them in verse 10, that ye may approve things that are excellent. That word excellent is a, is a very difficult word to translate into English. And in this context, the meaning of it is something like this, so that you might test to know what things really matter. I want you to have enough discernment to distinguish the important things from the unimportant. I want you to be able to recognize the issues over which you should plant your flag and over issues that we're not moving on. The issues over which you say, you know what, this really isn't a big deal. We can agree to disagree on this. We can let this one go. Paul wants them to have the kind of discernment then that that can differentiate the reasons over whether or not you should divide. This is the kind of judgment or discernment people need in the church if they want to preserve unity. You need to know what is worth fighting for, and you need to know what, what the issues are that are crucial to our faith. You need to be able to tell when something is a biblical truth that we cannot compromise on and when something is just your own personal preference or conviction that you are holding before God. I remember reading not too long ago about a church in the Midwest in which every single family at that church homeschooled their children. That was the glue that bonded the church together, homeschooling. In that church, they had elders that taught that man is justified by faith and by works of the law. So they had the wrong gospel. And the people in the church who believed in the true gospel knew that, that they had the wrong gospel, but they all homeschooled. So they stayed together in the same church. And that was a mixed-up church. That's a church without any discernment. Now, I can make a really good case for homeschooling. I have numerous scriptures and a very tight logic, I believe, gives an open and shut case for it. But you should never build a church around homeschooling. It's not of central significance. That is a personal conviction that people need to hold before God. Now, the doctrine of justification by faith alone, we can unite around that gospel truth because that is on what Christ builds his church. Christ does not build his church on whether you homeschool your children or send them to a Christian school. 
He builds it on the cross where he shed the blood by which we are justified. So often in the church, we can unite on things that don't really matter that much in the scope of everything that is important doctrinally and theologically. And we will say, those are the central issues. And then we'll tolerate all kinds of error in all kinds of other areas that are really important because, well, at least we agree on this one personal preference that I have. That's backwards. And Paul says, we need to pray for discernment so that we don't get that wrong. We do not want to unify on things of secondary importance and then agree to disagree about the gospel. We need to agree on what is of central significance and we need the discernment to know what those issues are. So we should pray for discernment. And second, we need to examine our motives. We need to examine our motives. Philippians chapter 2. If you look at Philippians chapter 2, look at verses 3 and 4. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 3, Paul says this, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Why do you do what you do in the church? What motivates you? We should all ask ourselves that question from time to time. Why do I want things to be this certain way? Is it because it is really bad for the whole church if things go this way rather than that way? Or is it because I just don't like this? This doesn't fit my preference. Paul is highlighting how dysfunctional the unity had become at Philippi. They were losing their unity of mind and mission and mastery. And why were they doing that? Because they were self-driven rather than being focused on the love of Christ and love for his church. One of the main causes of unnecessary conflict in the church is people who get upset about how things affect them personally without stepping back and saying, well, this is good for everyone, even if it's not my preference. Even if it's not what I would choose if I were in leadership. Is it good for the church as a whole? And if it is, I may not enjoy it as much as I would if it were different, but I'm not going to create a scene over it or storm out of church over it or stop giving because of it or all the different things that people do to express their displeasure when things don't go the way they want them to. I'm going to support it even though I don't like it because I know that it's good for the whole of the church. You know, some churches are so dysfunctional that the preferences of a small number of self-centered people hold the entire church hostage so that it cannot advance its mission. Maybe you've seen or been in a church like that. There are four or five people that have been there forever, and whatever they want is what happens. I was in a church like that once. 
That church was called Unity Baptist Church. And in that church, there had arisen uh, some immorality among some of the members. And because their family was basically in charge of the church, that immorality was looked over. It was papered over. And there was a split because of it, because there were other believers in that church who rightfully understood that you cannot have unrepentant sin among the membership of your church. And so Unity Baptist Church split. And it can cripple a church. It absolutely cripples a church when this happens. When people demand that all of their preferences are satisfied and they don't look out for the good of others. They don't look out for the good of the church as a whole. Not everyone in the church has the clout to bring things to a screeching halt if they don't get their way. But that doesn't mean the desire is not there in some of their hearts, right? We need to examine our motives. What is it that drives me? Why am I serving the way I am serving? This is for the good of the people of God or is it for my good? And the way we respond when things in the church don't go our way tells a lot about why we are doing what we're doing. We need to examine our motives. And third, to cultivate a diligent heart. A heart that is endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. We should pursue edification. We should pursue edification. And this goes back with the previous point. Turn over to Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14. We find another church really having a problem with unity. Romans chapter 14. And it's somewhat encouraging to realize that The Christian fight against disunity is not something new under the sun. Believers were struggling with disunity in the time of the apostles. And that's why we have to be diligent. This is a constant struggle. And in Romans chapter 14 and verse 19, the word of God says, Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace and things wherewith one may edify another. Pursue the things that edify, Paul says. Pursue the things that build up each other. Focus on the things that help everyone in the church to grow. Now, the context here is the squabble they were having in Rome over a very serious issue, the diet of other believers. Isn't that important? To make sure that everyone in the church is eating what you think they should eat? I mean, you want to talk about people meddling. Some people ate only vegetables, and others were ready for a bacon-wrapped sirloin with a side of shrimp. And the church was dividing over this. And you had half of the church, and this was the vegetarian section, and, and nobody who eats meat, sits over there. And then you had the side of the church that is in the meat-eating section. And these two groups are not going to sit with each other at the church potluck. 
They're going to separate. They're going to judge one another. They're going to condemn one another. Diet was becoming a significant problem in the church because of its connection with previous religious experiences for some church members. And Paul says, basically, look, instead of getting all wrapped up in what you're eating, pursue what makes for peace. Focus on the things that you have in common and encourage one another. Edify one another. Build up each other. Don't lose your focus and get all bogged down over meat and vegetables. He tells them in verse 17, For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink. Eat whatever you want, but focus on pursuing what builds up the other person. Focus on edifying your brothers and sisters. If your brother is a vegetarian, let it be. I mean, you might want to fix him, but don't. It's okay. It just means that there's more meat for you at the potluck. So let it go. You don't have to address that in their life. You don't have to roll your eyes when they pass the meat and they don't put any on their plate. You can be okay with it. Edify them. And if you're a vegetarian and you sit down to lunch and the person next to you has a a Dagwood sandwich filled to the brim with deli meats, it's okay. It's fine. Don't judge him. Don't condemn him. Instead, focus on what will edify him. What will build him up? Particular kinds of food are not going to do that. Pursue the kind of things that generate peace in the church, Paul says. Now, we have a natural inclination toward division. We love to divide everybody up between the good guys and the bad guys. We have our people, and then there's those people over there, and nobody understands them, and they're foolish, and they're ungodly or whatever it is, and our side is right, and we're on the good side, and we're really serving God. And we, when we divide up into those tribes and those factions, Paul says, you have to stop doing that. You have to stop dividing up like this. Everyone in the church should be able to edify everybody else in the church. We are one in Christ, and so pursue those things that bind you together. Pursue Christ together and edify each other. Don't get worked up over disputable matters, over things that are inconsequential. Well, how do you know if it's a disputable matter? Well, you start over and you go back to the first point. Pray for discernment. Asking God, is this something that I should be dividing over? And also seek godly counsel. Seek godly wisdom from other Christians. And finally, the fourth practical way we can be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit is to encourage the strugglers. Go back to Philippians chapter 4. Let's look at chapter 4 and verse 2. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 2. I beseech Eodius and beseech Syntyche that they may be of the same mind in the Lord. 
Have you ever had a sermon that really hit home? <laughs> imagine getting your name called in a sermon. Could you imagine being one of these two ladies in the middle of, of this church on the Lord's Day as the, the Philippians were coming together? And they're, they're sitting there and they're listening to the scroll being read. And suddenly you hear Eodius and you say, did I just hear my own name being called? Is he talking about me? Did the Apostle Paul just call me out for all of eternity in the word of God? How would you like that? Your squabble with somebody in the church gets put in the Bible for everyone to read. We don't know what they were fighting over, but it, it wasn't something that they should have been fighting over because Paul says they need to be of the same mind. They need to live in harmony in the Lord, in other words. There's no reason for this. And in verse 3, he goes on and he talks about these ladies. He says that these women have labored with me in the gospel and that they are fellow laborers whose names are in the book of life. These are godly women with, with battle scars. These are women who were warriors for Christ, and they, they had been in the trenches with the Apostle Paul and labored with him in the gospel. They'd struggled with him for the cause of the good news of Christ. They're not just some fringe ladies or passers-by that nobody knew about. These were pillars in that assembly. These are women who had suffered for the gospel. And what does this show us? It doesn't matter how mature you get in Christ. It doesn't matter how long you've served, with whom you've served. There's always a possibility that you end up disunited from somebody in the church. And sometimes you need help to get back together. We must encourage those who are struggling with unity. We have to come alongside them. In fact, Paul beseeches one of his fellow laborers in verse 3. And I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, help those women which labored with me in the gospel. Help them. Help them get their disagreement resolved. Help them to restore unity. Guard the unity of the church by encouraging them to get along and to live in harmony with, with each other and the Lord. And you can only imagine how daunting that must have been for Paul's true yoke fellow, his, his true companion, to come alongside these two brave godly women who were at odds and figure out a way to get them to live in harmony. That must have weighed heavily on the apostle's heart. And it must have been a serious issue that he needed to address. He doesn't often call people out by name. In fact, he does not even reveal the name of his true yoke fellow. So this must have been a serious concern for him. And that's how disunity in the church should always be for us. It should, it should weigh upon us. We should want to resolve it. It should be something that needs to be resolved so that we can restore and protect and guard and keep unity. And there are times when we have people that we love in the church who are not united. They're not living in harmony. They're not of the same mind. And rather than just standing back and just letting 
happen what will happen and letting them self-destruct, we need to get involved. We need to encourage them to live in harmony. We need to remind them that Christ is the bond that holds them together and help them know how to live in harmony with one another in the Lord. Could that get messy? Yes. And often it is. But the Lord Jesus said in Matthew 5, 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. There is a blessing attached to those who encourage people struggling and come alongside to help restore unity. So these are some practical steps for how you can be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit. Pray for discernment. Examine your motives. Pursue edification. Encourage those who are struggling with unity. It's not an easy task, but it is a task to which we are called by the Word of God. And it's what gives us hope and strength in the midst of that. And and what holds the church together is nothing that any one of us can do. The bond that binds us together is Jesus Christ. It is Christ himself that unifies his church. Now, there there are some reasons, there, there are some benefits for why we should get involved in this sometimes messy work of trying to keep unity of the spirit and the bond of peace and the blessings that attend to that. And we'll begin to consider those, Lord willing, in the next message. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the unity that you've created in the church. Lord, we thank you that it's not the work of any one man. It's not the combined work of a group. It's the divine work that you do through your spirit in our hearts. Father, we pray for our assembly. We pray for all the assemblies of your people. We thank you for the unity that you've created in them. We thank you for the unity that we have. Lord, we pray that where there are divisions, where there are temptations to have divisions, Father, we ask you to restore unity through your people. We ask that you would encourage, Lord, that you would teach us how to pursue those things that make for peace and for edifying one another. Lord, may we be diligent to build each other up. May the times that we gather, Lord, be times that we are encouraged to become more like Christ. And Lord, let us hear the words of your inspired apostles, Lord, and obey them. Let us examine ourselves, Lord, examine our motives and pursue edification and be diligent in heart, Lord, to keep the unity that you've created. Lord, we pray all of these things in Christ Jesus' holy name. Amen.